Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the future radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Monday, June 28th, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well today. You know, people are still trying to recover from the floods and recover from the, the storms here in the Detroit area. Michigan State Police put out a notice today. Well, they put one out, I think, yesterday also. Notice today, if you see flooding water, uh, don't swim in it. Uh, <laughs> if you, <laughs> I mean, they had to, I don't understand why they have to put, well, I do understand why they have to, some people, some people are stupid, but <laughs> anyway, if you see flooding water, okay, don't swim in it. Don't go scuba diving. Okay, that's, I mean, <laughs> it's nasty water. All right. I mean, it makes no sense, but maybe, maybe they're nasty people. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> but all right. So on today's show, we're going to continue our discussion from uh, Sunday. We had a jam packed show Sunday. You know, we're on two hours on Sunday. But uh, Sunday, I t one of the things we talked about was uh, June 26, 1844 in Oregon, uh, before Oregon became a state in the Union. Uh, Oregon passed a, a, a law banning all free black people in the state of Oregon. That was June 26, 1854. And we also see that the Oregon Constitution of 1857 included racial exclusions provisions against African-Americans and Asians. These are going to be what are known as black exclusion laws. And we see that uh, Oregon became a state in the Union February 14th, 1859. And it came into the Union as an all-white state. So in the second part of the show, we're going to continue our discussion dealing with um, uh, Oregon banning free black people in 1844, free African-Americans in 1844. And how this impacts Oregon today. The impact can still be felt uh, today. All right. We'll talk about that. Uh, in the first part of the show, I, I want to deal with this story out of Amherst, uh, Massachusetts. Amherst, Massachusetts. And I I've seen this uh, story for a few days here. But Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, the uh, city council has voted to establish a reparations fund for African-Americans. City Council has voted to establish a reparations fund for African-Americans. Now, we know there's a growing call for uh, reparations across the country, not just at the federal level, but also at the state and local level. We covered the story here dealing with Evanston, Illinois, who uh, earlier this year, uh, the city council uh, passed a uh, resolution to create a reparations program dealing with redlining, dealing with the history of redlining for Evanston. And they're taking uh, revenue generated from the sale of uh, marijuana, uh, legalized marijuana to create this fund. And that's a housing program, but it's, de it's designed to deal with uh, a history of redlining in Evanston, Illinois. Now we interviewed um, who was uh, then Fifth Ward Alderwoman Robin Ruth Simmons? I interviewed her right here on the sh on this show, and she was the one who spearheaded that initiative. Um, 
but we see that other cities are trying to figure out how they can address a history of racism, slavery, decades of Jim Crow segregation, redlining, etc., at the city level. And we see the city of Detroit, uh, there's an initiative to put uh, on the November ballot a reparations uh, proposal as well. Okay. So we'll talk about that on today's show also. All right. We'll talk about Amherst, uh, Massachusetts, but also talk about what's going on here locally in Detroit. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the comfort of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here. On the African History Network show, we deal with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter, text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, the sign up for our email newsletter, text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, the sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, sign up for our email newsletter. If you'd like to stop for information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show, PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show. When you do it through Cash App, be sure to do dollar sign the AHN show, S H O W. It'll say Michael and uh, it'll show my name there also. All right. Uh, our, our, we have a, a new online course starting up uh, Sunday, July 4th, the 4th of July, 2 p.m to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa understand the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. I teach the class. It's a 10-week online course. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have the information right on the homepage. You can register for the course there. As soon as you register, you can start watching uh, bonus content uh, as well. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. It's a 10 week uh, online course that I teach. It's going to start up Sunday, July 4th, 2021, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch around the world. We do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded, so you can go back and watch them over and over again. All right. I, I want to jump into uh, this first story here. And this is coming out of Amherst, Amherst, um, uh, Massachusetts. Okay. We're going to go to clip one here in just a second, Shakita. This is coming out of Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, th- there's a story from a couple of stories from the Associated Press, one from uh, ABC News, some local uh, outlets, uh, Mass Live as well out of, of Massachusetts. But the, there's one here from uh, NBC News also picked up from the Associated Press. Uh, Amherst creates fund to pay reparations to black residents. Amherst creates fund. Amherst, Massachusetts creates creates fund to pay 
uh, reparations to black residents. Now, Amherst, Massachusetts is among hundreds of communities and organizations across the country seeking to provide reparations for African-Americans. And, you know, this past weekend uh, in Cobra, National Coalition uh, of Blacks uh, for Reparations in America, they just had their national conference in Cobra. I, I wasn't able to attend. I was so busy. But, uh, you know, Dr. Linda Jeffries is one of my teachers. I think he was speaking there. And uh, some people I know who were speaking there, Dr. Greg Carl was speaking there as well. I'm sure Cam Howard spoke. Uh, also, we had Cam Howard here on the show dealing with uh, H.R. 40, uh, going to be voted on in the House Judiciary Committee. This was two or three months ago, and it actually passed the House Judiciary Committee for the first time in 32 years. Well, if we look at this article here from NBC News, uh, a Massachusetts town has created a fund to pay reparations to uh, African-American residents as communities and institutions, as communities and institutions uh, across the country look to atone for slavery, discrimination, and past wrongs amid the nation's ongoing racial reckoning, okay? Now, this is at the same time when you have an attack on the 1619 Project, you have an attack on critical race theory, you have a... Uh, um, the, the GOP, you have Republicans totally distorting what critical race theory is. Uh, you have state legislatures that are putting restrictions on what can be taught about systemic racism, what can be taught about the history of slavery, et cetera, in schools like the state of Texas. OK, all this is taking place at the same time. Uh, and this is also taking place. Uh, when we just commemorated the 100th. Um, anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, June 1st. And we commemorated and celebrated Juneteenth, June 19th. And June and Juneteenth was just made a federal holiday this month as well. All this is taking place at the same time. Now, the Amherst Town Council, City Council, uh, on Monday, uh, that, that was uh, Monday last week, Monday, uh, June 21st, voted. 12-1 in favor of establishing the fund and requiring a two-thirds vote of the city council to authorize any spending from it. The Daily Hamp Hampshire uh, Gazette reported, okay, it passed 12-1 to in favor of establishing the fund and requiring a two-thirds vote of the council to authorize spending from it. Uh, Michelle Miller co-founded Reparations for Amherst a local advocacy group that pushed for the measure. And she told the uh, newspaper, the Daily Hampshire Gazette, that the fund sets the foundation for providing equity in the college town, which is located 90 miles from Boston. OK, it's located 90 miles from from Boston. Uh, Michelle Miller and other proponents have cited restrictive housing policies. OK, whether it's redlining or restrictive covenants, restrictive housing policies uh, that prevented African-American families from purchasing homes uh, in desirable parts of town. African-Americans were also shut out of jobs and educational op opportunities at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, one of the state's largest and most prominent institutions, they say. So when, when, when I hear you know, white people talk about um, African-Americans can be equally as hard, equally as successful as white people if they try harder. They skip over just like the story yesterday we dealt with 
the African-American farmers, uh, their, their loan forgiveness uh, program being put on hold uh, by a Florida federal judge because a white farmer sued and said they're being discriminated against because they can't take take advantage of uh, the, 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 the federal debt loan forgiveness. But this is the deal with decades of discrimination. Uh, by African-American uh, against African-American farmers, decades of discrimination against African-American farmers by the federal government. OK, so they skip over the past hundred years and African, African-American farmers have lost. Ninety two percent of their land. OK, about 12 million acres of land over the past 100 years, they skip over all that. And then say, we want the same thing that you have, but they've been reaping the benefits for the past 100 years. The maldistributed benefits, white, white people, white farmers, white people in general have been reaping the benefits. But then when we talk about putting policies in place to remedy the benefits, they want to call that racist, but not the past 100, 200, 300 years of preferential treatment that they receive. They don't want to call that racist. Uh, before we go to break here, I want to go to this clip here. This is clip number one. This is from... Um, channel this is from channel 22 there in massachusetts uh wwlp 22 news amherst creates fund to pay reparations for black residents let's go to clip one the town of amherst has approved creating a fund to pay reparations to black residents the town council voted 12 to 1 in favor of setting up the fund the approval means the town can now begin accepting contributions for the effort and decide on other ways to finance reparations work. The council is considering a proposal to designate more than $200,000 in surplus money as an initial seed investment. Okay. So that's from uh, WWLP 22 News in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, We're going to continue this on the other side of the break. We'll also talk about the uh, reparations proposal. that uh, is, could possibly be on the November ballot here in Detroit. Looks like it's going to be on the November ballot as well. Uh, you listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Digital Dandelion's technical solutions works with businesses like yours to create an operations manual for your business, which is something many businesses don't have. According to AARP, more than 30% of small business owners are over 50 years old. Many business owners want to retire by selling their businesses or by passing their businesses on to their children. However, according to Forbes Investment Advisors, many retiring owners attempts to sell their businesses for retirement fail. You cannot sell your business without a business manual. Your children also cannot inherit your business because there is no way to run it. Your business does not have to die when you leave. Their business Bible products will give you the tools you need 
for a thriving business that can make you money even after you retire. Are you looking at increasing your business's annual revenue? Digital Dandelions can help you make at least $100,000 in annual revenue and expand your business. Speak with them today about solidifying your business. Visit DigitalDandelions.com today and get a free 30-minute consultation. We all know the cannabis industry is headed toward an uprise in the past decade. What happens when there is a brand that brings this uprise in a blow? The cannabis industry welcomes her uprise. Hustle Her Hemp. Delivering excellence with pride is her watchword, and how you choose to embrace it makes it a priority. From cultivating rich cannabis into exquisite and tastefully finished CBD products to delivery, Hustle Her Hemp leaves no stone unturned. Hustle Her Hemp's mission is to empower women of color by building business and creating legacies, uniting beauty, health, and business. We are a pure definition of how we want the CBD industry to become in the future. While we are redefining innovation, we bring the same energy to improving the quality of life. Hustle Her Hemp is the new Uprise. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation, the future radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Monday, June 28th, 2021. And we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, calling number is 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. All right, and we know June 29th is uh, tomorrow, but June 29th is the birth date of one Kwame Ture, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. So we posted an article uh, on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network uh, from blackpast.org, dealing with uh, Kwame Ture, who helped coin the term Black Power, 1966, June 1966. It was being used before then, but uh, it's a whole backstory. Uh, I interviewed Mukasa Dada who uh, worked with Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael. They were both in SNCC together. And, and Mukasa Dada talked about how it was actually he who came up with the term black power. But uh, Kwame Ture actually popularized it. Uh, Willie Ricks, Mukasa Dada. Mukasa Dada still alive. All right, still crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> brother, something else. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I want to go back to the story here dealing with uh, city council in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, passing a resolution to set up a fund, uh, to distribute reparations, uh, to African Americans. So this story comes by way of, uh, NBC news and they, ABC has a story on this. I looked at some local, uh, stories also on this. This is from June 25th, 2021 Amherst creates fund to pay reparations to black residents. Now, um, we see growing a growing push for reparations, but not just at the federal level. And we talked about this on our show yesterday. You have now 190 co-sponsors of HR 40 in the House of Representatives. All of them are Democrats. Go to Congress.gov. Go to Congress.gov. We talked about this on yesterday's show. So go back. You know, all these shows are archived at our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History the African History Network and our YouTube channel, Mike Lim Hotel, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. 
You can read all these bills at congress.gov, bills coming out of the House of Representatives and U.S. Senate. You can read them at congress.gov, look at H.R. 40, Commission to Study and Develop Rep Proposals for African Americans Act, sponsored by Sheila Jackson Lee of the Congressional Black Caucus, Democrat out of Texas, same woman who sponsored the uh, Juneteenth bill to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. As we talked about on our show, we dealt with the evidence that there's been a fight going back to late the late, the late 1960s to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. People didn't just start trying to make Juneteenth a federal holiday last year. That is decades in the making. And, and the fight for reparations and Juneteenth are directly related. There's a reason why she, she's a sponsor of both bills. They are related. They are not separate. But if you go and, and read this here, uh, this is at congress.gov. This is where we go to do research and read bills. It, uh, it shows you who spot, who co-sponsored the bill, who has signed on to vote for the bill. It's 190 names. They're all Democrats. No Republicans in the House of Representatives support H.R. 40. Okay, so what does that tell you? And for it now for it to pass the U.S. Senate, as we talked about yesterday, you're going to need 10 Republicans to vote for it because you need 60 votes in the Senate. 10 Republicans in the Senate right now that support reparations don't exist. You got a better chance of finding uh, the, uh, the Loch Ness Monster and and uh, Bigfoot. OK, then, then you do try to find 10 Republicans in the U.S. Senate that support reparations. They don't exist. All right. So read this here. Let's go back to this one from um, NBC News. So. Uh, Michelle Miller, who co-founded reparations for Amherst and other proponents, have cited restrictive housing policies preventing African-Americans uh, from purchasing homes in desirable parts of town. That's redlining. OK. And redlining is created by the federal government. All right. A lot of these policies were created by the federal government and they're going to be adopted by states and cities and local municipalities. Um, but there's a, a there's a good piece from blackpass.org dealing with redlining. Redlining goes back to um, it was created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation in 1933. It was, Homeowners Loan Corporation was created by the federal government in 1933. Redlining we're going to see coming to existence somewhere between 1934 and 1937. We look at this piece here from blackpass.org. There's a redlining 1937. It talks about how redlining refers to a discriminatory pattern of disinvestment and obstructive lending practices that act as an impediment to home ownership among African-Americans and other people of color. Now, we know that home ownership is one of the number one ways that you build wealth in this country. African-Americans have largely been shut out of that one way or another. Uh, banks use the concept to deny loans to homeowners and would-be homeowners who lived in these neighborhoods. This in turn resulted in neighborhood economic decline and the withholding of services or their provision at an exceptionally high cost. The origin of the term redlining stems from the policies developed by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the HOLC, created in 1933 by the Franklin Roosevelt administration. This was part of the New Deal. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is part of the New Deal to reduce home foreclosures during the Great Depression, which starts in 1929. The stock market crash of October 1929. 
and then institutionalized by the 1937 U.S. Housing Act, the 1937 U.S. Housing Act. This is all federal law. And the 1937 U.S. Housing Act established the Federal Housing Association, the FHA. Federal housing agencies, including the HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, and the uh, Federal House and the Federal Housing Association, FHA, determine whether areas were deemed unfit for investment by banks, insurance companies, savings and loan associations, and other financial services companies. The areas were physically demarcated with red shading on a map. In contrast, zones which were which were to receive preferential lending status were marked in green shading and intermediate areas in blue shading. Often these decisions were arbitrarily based on the area's racial composition rather than income levels. Often these decisions were arbitrarily based on the area's racial composition rather than income levels. While the practice was almost universal before 1968. The Civil Rights Act passed that year, the, 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 which was the Fair Housing Act in 1968. The, the, the Fair Housing Act in 1968 theoretically outlawed redlining. Nonetheless, its impact was still felt after that date. In a series of Pulitzer Prize winning articles, which appeared in 1988 under the title The Color of Money, Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Bill Dedman described how Atlanta, Georgia banks still discriminated by the racial designation of neighborhoods. Well, so one of the things this is showing is how white people benefit from their whiteness, even if they don't know they benefit from their whiteness. This, this is one of the things that this is showing when you study this history. This is why you have certain people that want to shut down the uh conversation about teaching this history, teaching the history of systemic racism and things like this in, in school. Because now you're going to deal with how this whole system is put together and the maldistribution of wealth, power, resources. And if you can figure out how this is all put together, then you can understand the laws that have to be reversed and how and how to change this. So so there's a concerted effort to suppress this from being taught in schools. And the reason and the reason why people want to suppress it from being taught in schools is because they benefit from wealth, power, resources being maldistributed. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. This kind of the ideology of European white supremacy. This is for the purpose of preserving genetic white survival. Racism it has nothing to do with not liking people, calling people racial epithets, things like this. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. Now, this is not attacking people. This is not attacking people who are white. No, we're talking about a system of white supremacy and racism. Oftentimes you have people who benefit from the system and don't really know it. They may not, they're not bad people, but they, a lot of times they benefit from it and don't know it. This is why this is a concerted effort to, to keep the history from being taught. Because see, once people start realizing, because you have some people who say, well, wait a second, we saw with the protest that took place in, in the summer 2020. It wasn't just black people out protesting. It was white people as well as saying this is wrong. This is unjust. There was white people saying black lives matter as well. So read the rest of this article here from uh, blackpass.org. This one deals with uh, redlining. Okay. 
and there are other articles you can you can read dealing with this. Um, his article illustrated how these banks, uh, Bill Detman for Atlanta Journal Constitution. His article illustrated how these banks were nearly twice as likely to lend to homeowners and prospective homeowners in low income white neighborhoods as in affluent black neighborhoods. Now, here's here's white people who are low income white neighborhoods who are benefiting from the discriminatory practices of the banks. Now, sometimes they didn't know. Sometimes, you know, it could be a situation where they didn't know the banks were doing this. But now we do know. See, they're benefiting from being white. Now, it, it could be very well. A lot of them didn't know that the banks were doing this or continue to do this after 1968, after the Fair Housing Act, because it's going to be another 20 years until about 1988, where the Fair Housing Act actually has some teeth in it to really be enforced. So read the rest of this here. I don't have time to get through it. There's only one hour show. Redlining from blackpass.org. Okay. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. This shows you, gives you some insight into how this system works. And politics is the legal distribution of what? Scarce wealth, power, and resources. These were laws from the federal government. The, the, the red line was created by the federal government. Okay, so when we talk about repairing the damage, we're not just talking about repairing it. We talk about reparations. We're not just talking about repairing the damage of 246 years of slavery. We're talking about decades of Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, housing discrimination, job discrimination, theft of land. Okay, being locked out of uh, uh, loans. We're talking about repairing the damage. that male distributed wealth power and resources into the, into the hands of Europeans. And one of the ways we see this is the racial wealth gap where uh, the median uh, household wealth for white families, 10 times that of an African-American family. Okay, let's go back to this one here. So uh, Michelle Miller and other proponents have cited restrictive housing policies that prevented African-American families from purchasing homes in desirable parts of town. We can also talk about the GI Bill. I've done a whole presentation dealing with the GI Bill and how many African-Americans were locked out of getting the low interest loans to uh, go to college, uh, uh, buy homes and start businesses uh, after World War II. OK, when these men come back home and, and many of them, are many African-American GIs are discriminated against when it comes to taking advantage of the benefits that they earned from serving in the military through the GI Bill. Now, African-Americans will also shut out of jobs and educational opportunities at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, one of the state's largest and most prestigious institutions. As a result, the median income for Amherst, uh, Massachusetts white families is more than two times that of African-American families and more than half of this African-American population lives below the poverty line. Now, once again, see, now you may have a lot of white people you have a lot of white people who benefit from this maldistribution of wealth, power, and resources, but may not, they may not know it until it's brought to their attention. They may, they, they may not really understand how all that came about. Some of them do, but some of them don't. And there's a reason why you have certain people that don't want this history taught in schools. Because you have a lot of people who realize, just as, just as we saw last summer, 
of different races to realize this is wrong. You can't treat people like this. This is why America must have a massive history lesson. This is why America must have a massive history lesson to, to correct these injustices. You have to call them out so you can correct them. Now, Amherst, Massachusetts is among hundreds of communities and organizations across the country seeking to provide reparations to African-Americans from the state of California to cities like Providence, Rhode Island, religious denominations like the Episcopal Church and prominent colleges like Georgetown University in Washington. In, in, in Washington. Uh, Amherst, Massachusetts advocates have cited Evanston, Illinois, and, uh, which became the first African-American city to pay reparations last month as a model that, that, that would be uh, May 2020 as a model for their efforts. Now, Robin Rue Simmons, Fifth Ward Alderwoman Robin Rue Simmons, she spearheaded that initiative in Evanston, Illinois. And the proposal that the city council came up with is based upon a 77 page study that was done in, in the year 2020. OK, and I read some of that study in preparation for my one hour interview with Robin Ruth Simmons. We the, the interviews are archived here on the African History Network uh, on Facebook and YouTube. And I've got the study around here somewhere. Oh, uh, I got it because I took it to the printer and got it printed up. Oh, I think this is let's see right here. This right here. Evanston policies and practices directly affecting the African-American community, 1900 to 1960 and present. This is the 77 page study that the reparations program in Evanston, Illinois is based upon. They did the research. Now, some people say, oh, why are you dealing with housing? Why aren't you dealing with, uh, why aren't you dealing with slavery? Well, when you read the study and you do research on this, you'll find out that the state of Illinois abolished slavery in 1818. Evanston, Illinois was founded in the 1840s. Evanston did not have a history of slavery, but they had a rampant history of housing discrimination and redlining going back to 1855 when the first African-American moved into Evanston, Illinois. That's why they dealt with redlining and not slavery. They don't have a history of slavery in Evanston, Illinois. And when I called uh, Robin Ruth Simmons, who at the time was the Fifth Ward Alderwoman, and I explained this to her. I said, you know, I've been researching this. I said, I haven't found any evidence that slavery ever existed in Evanston, Illinois. She said, you know, I'm so glad you said that because so many people were putting out misinformation saying, oh, they should do it for, they should do reparations for slavery. This is a joke, blah, 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 because they ain't do research. And when I started breaking it down to her, because I researched this, I said, I can't find any evidence that slavery ever existed in Evanston, Illinois. She said it didn't. That's why they dealt with redlining. Okay, let's continue here. Calling numbers 313-778-7600 is the calling number. If you have a quick question or comment, 313-778-7600 is the calling number. If you have a quick question or comment. All right, uh, we're going to go to clip two here in just a second, Shakita. So... The program out of Evanston, Illinois, uses marijuana tax revenues to give uh, eligible African-Americans $25,000 housing grants for down payments, repairs or existing mortgages. Amherst town manager uh, Paul uh, Bachelman said local approval of a fund means the town can now begin accepting contributions for reparation work and decide 
on a financial plan going forward. Um, Paul Bachelman and other town officials have suggested designating more than $200,000 in surplus budget funds as an initial as an initial seed investment. OK, uh, the council on Monday also approved creating the African Heritage Reparations Assembly to develop the town's reparations plan by October 31st, 2021. The newspaper reported it will be made up of six African-American residents and one representative from reparations for, for Amherst. Uh, Counselor uh, 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 Mandy Jo Haneke was the lone vote against the fund, uh, uh, suggesting it was premature to establish it before forming the assembly. Okay, yes, she's a white woman also. I went to her page, her Facebook page and checked it out. Uh, Michelle Miller, meanwhile, said Thursday her group hopes to establish a fund, a private fund to bolster the town's efforts. OK, uh, she said, quote, we look forward to supporting the African heritage community to implement a robust and sustainable reparative plan. End quote. OK, check out the uh, this article here at NBC News. Uh, dot com Amherst creates fund to pay reparations to African-American residents. Now, at the same time that this is going on in different cities uh, across the country, we also see a growing call for reparations right here in uh, the city of Detroit. And uh, Keith Williams, um, uh, Michigan Democratic uh, Black Caucus, he called me. He's a friend of mine. We're on uh I'm on the board of Grits and Politics with uh, Keith Williams. He called me about this a few weeks ago. Uh, we know that uh, a, a, a um, they're collecting uh, signatures uh, to put this, uh, put a reparations bill on the ballot in the uh, November uh, election here in Detroit also. Okay. I want to go to uh, this clip here from uh, WDIV Channel 4. From uh, this is from June 16th, June 16th, 2021. Reparations discussion gains momentum with city council resolution petition drive. Let's go to this clip. Reparations making a serious case for reparations here in Detroit. Council leaders just approved a new resolution that will allow the city to explore potential options for this long talked about topic. Victor Williams says more on just how many Detroiters are signing on to this idea, and it seems to have momentum at the moment, Victor. Lots of momentum, Devin. Take a look at this. This is just one of the sheets that's used to collect signatures for this petition. Notice there are only 12 slots, so if we wanted to show you all of the Detroiters that signed on to this, we'd be, hundred, we'd be, we'd be holding hundreds of these. We never got our 40 acres on a mule. We should have continued what happened after 1865, and then we have all of those things that set us back, like Jim Crow. Attorney Todd Perkins says so far enough people have signed on to have the vote for reparations appear on the upcoming November ballot. What I understand the signature amount that's required is 3,608. We submitted, I believe, well over 3,700 signatures. At this point, the signatures will have to be validated, but the groundwork is being done in a way that works hand-in-hand hand with a similar idea from Detroit City Council. 
it is a cause to say that we as a city would like to join the national movement uh, regarding reparations. City Council President Pro Tem Mary Sheffield says the historic resolution was just passed so that now the city can finally have an open discussion on what can be done. We, as a predominantly black city, believe that so many of our families have been hurt. Uh, and we would like to begin to explore ways in which uh, reparations could play out here in Detroit. But some leaders in the black community, like pastor of 180 Church Lorenzo Sewell, believes the handout is exactly what this would be. I believe that us as a people, we have enough within ourselves to do everything we need to do to pull ourselves up. I don't believe that we need a handout. Anytime you receive shekels, there come shackles. And the resolution that was passed mainly focuses on reparations for America and our entire nation. But for once with the signatures that I'm holding right here in my hand, this is mainly, according to Todd Perkins, something that's going to be for Detroiters specifically. As far as where the money is coming from, he's saying maybe we should dip into the marijuana money because a lot of those funds have yet to be allocated. Mr. Williams. Okay, pause right there. All right, that's uh, courtesy uh, WDIV Channel 4 in Detroit. That's on June 16th, 2021. Uh, they have an article uh, dealing with this at clickondetroit.com. Clickondetroit.com. Um, Detroit City Council approves reparations resolution. That's an article from clickondetroit.com. This clip is also on uh, their YouTube channel, WDIV's YouTube channel, uh, naming that clip is Reparations Discussion Gains Momentum with City Council Resolution Petition Drive. OK, now uh, the pastor that you heard, uh, see, this is an example of how you need to go study some history. OK, there's always an Isaiah T. Montgomery in the bunch. There's always an Isaiah T. Montgomery in the bunch. Who was who Isaiah T. Montgomery? Isaiah T. Montgomery was the only African-American delegate at the Mississippi State uh, Convention in 1890 when they voted on the Mississippi State Constitution and the Mississippi State Constitution instituted poll taxes and literacy tests. And Isaiah T. Montgomery was the founder of Bayou, Mississippi. He was a wealthy African-American. He owned land. He was also the first mayor of Bayou, Mississippi. And he voted against the interests of his own people, along with these white supremacists at the Mississippi State Convention. OK, we talked about this before as well. Uh, read this article here from uh, Washington Post, the Mississippi plan to keep blacks from voting in 1890. We came here to exclude the Negro. OK, now. The quote, we came here to exclude the Negro, that is what. The convention president, Solomon Saladin Calhoun, who was a white county judge, that's what he said. He said, this is why we're here. He said, quote, let's tell the truth if it bursts the bottom of the universe. Let's tell the truth if it bursts the bottom of the universe. We came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. And Isaiah T. Montgomery voted along with the white supremacists against the interests of his own people. Okay, that's Hiram Rose Revels. He's the first African American U.S. Senator from Mississippi. The, who was not the first? He's the only. They haven't had one since 1870 when he was sworn in. 1870. They haven't had one since Reconstruction because of the because of the restrictive voting laws that that were passed in, in Mississippi. This is why. This is one of the reasons why you needed a um, 
so uh, a Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay. And it's been attacked. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 has been attacked since it was signed into law in 1965 by President Lyndon Johnson. This is Isaiah T. Montgomery. I think he's related to Senator Tim Scott also of uh, South Carolina. This is Isaiah T. Montgomery. All right. So there's always one in the bunch. Um, This is why you need to understand history. So let's go back to this article here from uh, Detroit Free Press. Uh, name of this article is uh, Detroit City Council pushes ahead with reparations initiative. Detroit City Council pushes ahead with reparations reparations initiative from Dana Afana, uh, June 15, 2021. Uh, and that's uh, Mary Sheffield, uh, President pro tem of the Detroit City Council and uh, City Councilwoman of District 5. Uh, so the resolution also states that African-Americans have been unjustly enslaved, segregated, incarcerated, denied housing, quote, through racist practices, end quote, in public and private markets, denied mortgages, displaced and faced racial steering, redlining, blockbusting, gentrification and more. This don't have nothing to do with what the hell we got in us. What, we, what we're talking about is what happened to us. OK, this is what we're talking about. This is what happens when you don't understand history. Attorney Todd Perkins. And I know Todd. I, I just saw Todd. Um, what day is this? Monday. I saw Todd Thursday. I, uh, I didn't get my hair cut and his law office is in the same uh, building. So uh, Attorney Todd Perkins is submitting a ballot initiative for the November 2020 uh, e election seeking to amend a portion of the city charter, I'm sorry, 2021, uh, seeking to uh, amend a portion of the city charter, which, quote, restricts from the voters to enact city ordinances for the appropriation of money, restricts power, restricts power from the voters to enact city ordinances for the appropriation of money, end quote, according to the petition. Now, he said this is a way to sequester funds from marijuana revenue sales to be placed in a reparations fund or committee. This don't have nothing to do with handouts. This has nothing to do with handouts. This deals with repairing the damage of a legacy of slavery, decades of Jim Crow segregation, redlining, et cetera, that have created the racial disparities that exist today. This don't have nothing to do with handouts. Quote, they would, they would then decide how these monies would be spent and for what purpose, said attorney Todd Perkins, who told the Detroit Free Press he received nearly 4,000 signatures. He said, quote, it creates a sense of understanding and acknowledgement that, OK, you were actually wronged. There's an acknowledgement that something went wrong. Well, not only that, we, we deal with the U.S. Interstate Highway Acts of 1952 and 1956 that drove about 41,000 miles of U.S. Interstate Highways all across the country. They ran right through Black Bottom and Paradise Valley right here in Detroit, wiping out businesses and homes. About 300 businesses wiped out. Those African-Americans are going to be displaced over the 12th and Claremont. Many of them go over the 12th and Claremont. So when the rebellion jumps off 1967, those people were already angry because they lost their homes because the expressways ran through. This ain't nothing about no damn handout. What are you talking about? Let me do some research. It creates a sense of understanding and acknowledgement that, okay, you were actually wrong. There is an acknowledgement that something went wrong. Now, Michigan Democratic Black uh, uh, Chair Keith Williams, who's a friend of mine, uh, 
is is working with attorney Todd Perkins, another friend of mine, on pushing for reparations for African-American Detroiters, uh, Keith Williams said. Uh, uh, Keith said, quote, you can go back to 1792 when William Macomb, who Macomb is named after Macomb Street, William Macomb had 26 slaves, William said. You could throw in Lewis Cass also. Lewis Cass owned at least one slave. That's who Cass Technical High School is named after. The name of Cass Tech needs to be changed. I've been telling you that. And, and, and Lewis Cass was also President Andrew Jackson's Secretary of War, and he helped carry out the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which pushed the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians off their land in the southeast United States, sent them over a thousand miles into Oklahoma on what's known as the Trail of Tears. And one third of the people on the Trail of Tears were African people. These were the slaves of, uh, of those five civilized tribes of Native Americans. This is Lewis Cass, who was involved in the suppression and attacking and displacement of African Americans. And this is whose Cass Technical High School is named after. So when we talk about repairing the damage, we also got to repair the damage to the minds of Negroes as well, because we've been mentally damaged. This is something that, that Dr. Carter G. Woodson talked about in his most famous book, The Miseducation of the Negro. They wouldn't give loans, Keith said, they wouldn't give loans to African Americans. Then you had the city of Detroit ordinances created where African Americans live in slums so they could, so they could use federal money for a highway system in their community. Then you got the 1967 riot. He said, riot is actually rebellion. He probably meant rebellion. It's a rebellion. We were rebelling against a system of white supremacy and racism. And all you have to do is go read the Kerner Commission report that was commissioned in about June, July 1967. Came out March, it came out March 1968, commissioned by uh, 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 President Lyndon Johnson, okay, and, and Governor Otto Kerner of uh, Illinois, he was the, uh, he headed it up. So that's why I got the name Kerner, uh, the Kerner Commission. It talked about what caused the rebellions. It talked about a disinvestment in, in the cities. It talked about poor education, uh, uh, poor opportunity for jobs. It talked about the racism and discrimination that was inflicted upon African-Americans. This is not talking about no hand up, okay? This is talking about get your knee off our neck. This is dealing with repairing the damage. Now, when... Uh, let's see. So uh, Keith Williams added that the caucus also endorsed Proposal P, a ballot initiative to amend the city's charter, the city of Detroit's charter. Part of the changes includes establishing a reparations task force. When he said when Mary's resolution, um, uh, Councilwoman Pro Tem Mary Sheffield, when Mary's resolution was voted on, then passed, he said, I had tears in my eyes. I look at the people who left Black Bottom. OK, I thought about the people who went through police brutality right here in the city of Detroit. Uh, and, and, and a lot of that ha uh, happened before uh, Mayor Coleman Alexander Young, before Mayor Coleman Alexander Young became mayor, because when he became mayor, one of the first things he did was to um, integrate the uh, police force because there was such rampant police brutality by white police officers taking place before the 67 rebellion. We can go back to the 1943 Detroit race riot up and down uh, 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 Woodward Avenue during World War II. We can go back to the 1943 Detroit race riot. Uh, so he said the people who have been impoverished all of their lives in Detroit, all of the wealth that was taken from us. I say God is good, uh, Keith Williams said. Now the resolution uh, from city council highlights 
that the city addresses a range of issues, including right to water and sanitation. That's not a handout. Right to environmental health. That's not a handout. Right to safety. Right to live free from discrimination, including people with disability, immigrants, LGBTQ and others. That's not a handout. Right to recreation, right to access and mobility, right to housing, right to the right to the fulfillment of basic needs. OK, uh, read the rest of this. It goes on to say uh, Mary Sheffield said says there's a lot of systemic issues that African-Americans face. And this is a predominantly black city and needs to stay a predominantly black city as well. She said, I think it's important that we acknowledge it and we at least begin to have conversations on how to address the issues of reparations. OK, so read the rest of this article. Those watching on Facebook and YouTube, we're going to keep broadcasting. We're out of time here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. We're going to talk about uh, when Oregon banned uh, black people, uh, free black people in 1844. We'll continue that discussion right now. It's correct. Wrong behavior is not over till we win Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Stand by. Stand by. All right. We're going to keep going here. We're out of time here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. Um, how's everybody doing? Hey, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, and also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Okay, we definitely need your support. This helps us keep broadcasting six days a week because, as you know, as I said before, some people don't know this, right? I'm on the radio, I don't get paid to do radio, right? They don't, I don't. <laughs> I don't get paid to do radio. So this helps to finance all this. All right. This helps us keep broadcasting six days a week. Keep doing the research, pay some of the bills, etc. Okay. Uh, dollar sign the AHN show through cash app. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, or, or at our website, africanhistorynetwork.com. Now we have a new online course starting up uh, Sunday, uh, July 4th, the 4th of July, Sunday, July 4th, 2021. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in schools. Class number one. This is a 10-week online course that I teach. When you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, scroll down. It's a 10-week online course that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Uh, click on register here. takes you to the next page. And uh, you see it says 20-hour online course. Click here to enroll. It's regularly $130 on sale, $80. Uh, this is a 10 week online course. We do the class live. All of the sessions are recorded. All the sessions are recorded. So you can go back and watch it over and over again. OK, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have uh, book references, articles, video clips, guest speakers. Uh, Dr. David M. Hotel, who wrote the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. Uh, he spoke to my class uh, June 12th because I, I have Saturday classes wrapping up right now. We have three more sessions of the Saturday class. And uh, he he, uh, he spoke to my class. We had uh, archaeologist uh, Nubia Wartford uh, speak to my class a, a few weeks ago. So we do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded. Uh, you can go back and watch them over and over again. And what we're going to do when you register for the class, we're also going to enroll you in the Saturday class. So you can uh, watch classes one through seven of the Saturday class. And... Um, You'll be you can also join us live Sunday, July 4th, 2021 for uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, 
understand the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Okay. All right. So I want to go to um, this next story here and let's see, Get, uh, read the book. How white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy, how white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy. And, uh, this book deals with a lot of the laws and policies that were put in place uh, to maldistribute wealth, power, and resources. And it deals with uh, the U.S. Interstate Highway Acts in 1952 and 56. It deals with, you know, the expressways. Uh, 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 it deals with the uh, uh, redlining, uh, steering, all, all those policies to maldistribute wealth, power, and resources. This is after slavery. Okay. This is after slavery. There's also a piece from um, NBCNews.com that deals with the expressways because there's more talk in different cities uh, dealing with trying to repair some of the damage that the expressway systems have done and going through um, uh, the expressway systems going through and wiping out homes and businesses, disrupting communities, et cetera. OK, there's a piece from uh, I saw this clip and Jamon Jordan is in it also. They've shown it on MSNBC. Jamon Jordan, historian here in Detroit, a friend of mine. We've had him here on the show before. Um, I'm not sure if this one, we'll, we'll try to talk about this um, uh, sometime this week because I have some other things uh, lined up. But if you look at this piece here from June 18th, 2021 from NBC News, okay? And this is all connected. We're talking about repairing the damage. We're not talking about a handout. Bulldozed and bisected. Bulldozed and bisected. Highway construction built a legacy of inequality where their removal healed historic wounds. Highway construction built a legacy of inequality. Will their removal heal historic wounds okay um so uh, re read this article here from uh, nbcnews.com this is from june 18th 2021 bulldozed and and bisected highway construction built a legacy of inequality black on purpose television network yes black on purpose television network all black all positive all the time the largest black owned streaming television network in the world bringing our people together worldwide controlling our messages our story our way black tv the way it should be black music black history and more 30 plus channels thousands of shows black on purpose television network subscribe now hi i'm joel wilson president and ceo of jcw computer consulting llc a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers we offer a full spectrum of industry top tier branded services we are an authorized partner or reseller for lenovo zoom t-mobile Microsoft 365 and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, 
Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. For 25 years, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum has carried on the rich legacy of the Black Museum movement in America by showcasing original artifacts of the Black experience at colleges, universities, K-12 schools, corporations, libraries, conferences, and cultural events, making it the most traversed black history mobile exhibit in American history. Dr. Khalid El Hakim is the founder of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, and he is a highly sought after public speaker on topics of black history, social studies, education, museum studies, hip hop, and race relations. Dr. Khalid was named among the change makers for NBC Universal's Erase the Hate campaign and listed as one of the 100 men of distinction for black enterprise. He recently founded the Michigan Hip Hop Archive on the campus of Western Michigan University. The Black History 101 Mobile Museum is currently scheduling in-person and virtual exhibits nationwide. For more information, please contact Dr. Khalid Al-Hakim directly at 313-645-4197, 313-645-4197, or visit their website at blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. That's blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. You can also email him at bhistory101 at yahoo.com, bhistory101 at yahoo.com. All right, now I, I want to go to... Um, this next story here. So on our show yesterday, we, we started talking about uh, what happened in Oregon in 1844, June 26, 1844. Oregon was uh, a territory. It wasn't a state in the union. And they passed a law that banned all free African-Americans. Okay. They passed a law banning all free African-Americans. There was a uh, a piece from Equal Justice Initiative that talked about this. And uh, we shared that on, on yesterday's show, on Monday's show. Um, so we're going to recap that. And then I want to go to this piece from the uh, Washington Post that goes more in depth. And there's some information also from BlackPass.org. Uh, June 26, 1844. Oregon bans free African-Americans, okay? Uh, on June 26, 1844, the Legislative Committee of the territory then known as Oregon County passed the first of a series of black exclusion laws, passed the first of a series of black exclusion laws. The law dictated that free, uh, free African-Americans were prohibited from moving into Oregon County and those who violated the ban could be whipped not less than 20, no more than 39 strikes. 
They could be those who violated the ban could be whipped, not less than 20, no more than 39 stripes. That December, the law was amended to substitute forced labor for whipping. It specified that African-Americans who stayed within Oregon would be hired at a public auction and that the hirer would be responsible for removing the hiree out of the territory after the prescribed period of forced service was rendered. This law was enforced even though slavery and involuntary servitude were illegal in Oregon. All right. Uh, the preamble to a later exclusion law passed in 1849, it explained legislators' beliefs that, quote, it would be highly dangerous to allow free Negroes and mulattoes to reside in the territory of Oregon County or Oregon country, I should say, or to intermix with Indians, instilling feeling, instilling feelings of hostility toward the right white race. Okay. Or intermix with Indians, instilling feelings of hostility toward the white race. Now, Oregon, uh, the Oregon constitution of 1857 included racial exclusion provisions against African-Americans and Asian Americans. And then we know February 14th, 1849, Oregon joins the union as an all white state. Okay. Oregon joins the union as a, as an all white state. All right. So that's from, uh, EJI.org equal justice initiative. Now I want to, uh, look at this piece from Washington post. This is by Denine L. Brown, June 7th, 2017. When Portland banned blacks, Oregon's shameful history of an all white state. And let me pull this up here. Do I have this one? Okay, just let me pull this one up also. Just one second here. All right. So in 1844, um, and, and they show a picture here, the Ku Klux Klan parade East Main Street in Ashland, Oregon in the 1920s. They show uh, the Klan having a parade, the Klan marching. All right. So in 1844, all African-Americans were ordered to get out of Oregon country, the expansive territory under American rule that stretched from the Pacific coast to the Rocky Mountains. It stretched from the Pacific coast to the Rocky Mountains. And actually, if you look here, we have the map. Get to see uh, Oregon country here. Okay, United States here. So it's not a state in the Union yet. It becomes a state in the Union in 1859. 
This is British North, North America, Canada. This is Vancouver over here, part of Canada. Pacific Ocean. Okay, so uh, in 1844, all African-Americans were ordered uh, to get out of Oregon country, the expansive territory under American rule that stretched from the Pacific coast to the Rocky Mountains. Those who refused to leave could be severely whipped. The provisional government law declared, but not less than uh, by not less than 20 or more than 39 stripes, end quote, to be repeated every six months until they left, to be repeated every six months until they left. They will be beaten every six months until they left. Okay, Oregon country. Now, these laws still have an effect on the racial makeup of Oregon today. This is why it's one of the whitest states in the country. Now, Oregon country's provisional government uh, was led by Peter Burnett, a former slaveholder who who came west from Missouri by wagon train. And he passed a law in 1845, uh, 15 years before Oregon became a state. The law allowed slaveholders to keep their slaves for a mass maximum of three years. The law allowed slaveholders to keep their slaves for a maximum of three years. After the grace period, all African-Americans, those considered freed or enslaved, were required to leave Oregon country. African-American women were given three years to get out. African-American men were required to leave in two. Not exactly sure why they wanted African-American women to stay extra year. I can I can guess, but not exactly sure. So the law became known as the Peter Burnett Lash Law, the Peter Burnett Lash Law. Burnett, who also opposed Chinese migration to Oregon country, would later become the first American governor of California. OK, later became the first American governor of California. And there was discrimination against both both African-Americans and Asian-Americans in California. Also, um, there was a let me see. There was a. Piece here. Uh, who had that article? Because they have a picture of Peter Burnett. Uh Oregon Live, I think this one right here from OregonLive.com. Yeah, this one right here. Black History Month, Oregon's exclusion laws aimed to prevent blacks from settling here. Uh, this is from January, uh, January 10th, 2019. Uh, this is uh, Peter Burnett author of Oregon's 1844 exclusion law. This is uh, Peter Burnett. He became the uh, first um, uh, governor of California. All right. First American governor of California. Now the last law named after Peter Burnett, the Peter Burnett lash law was quickly amended and then repealed. 
no African American, uh, no African Americans were ever lashed under the law. Okay, but it's originally called the Peter Burnett Lash Law. But the act would become the first of three exclusion laws. Okay, the act would become the first of three exclusion laws that shaped the Pacific West, banning any additional African Americans from coming to Oregon country. Okay, the act would become the first of three exclusion laws that shaped the Pacific West, banning any additional African-Americans from coming to uh, Oregon country. Now, those laws created what one African-American, one African-American professor calls a very hostile environment, a very hostile environment that has long made Oregon and its large, largest city, Portland, okay, Portland, Oregon, where the Trailblazers are from, the NBA team, I think they're still from Portland. A stronghold is made Portland a stronghold for white supremacists like Jeremy Joseph Christian, the man accused of killing two men and severely wounding another on a light rail train um, in uh, May of 2017. May of 2017. This article is from June 7th, 2017. Now, few people are aware of Oregon's history of blatant racism, including its refusal to ratify the 14th and 15th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. 14th Amendment dealing with uh, citizenship, 15th Amendment dealing with guaranteeing the right to vote for African-American men, uh, 15th Amendment 1870, 14th Amendment 1868. Now, in 1848, the territorial government passed a law. This is before it become, before Oregon becomes a state in the Union. That's not until 1859. Um, in 1848, the territorial uh, government passed a law making it illegal for any Negro or mulatto to their words, not mine, to live in Oregon country. In 1850, under the Oregon Donation Land Act, the Oregon Donation Land Act, whites and half-breed Indians were granted 650 acres of land from the government. Okay, white people and half-breed Indians were granted 650 acres of land from the government. But any other person of color was excluded from claiming land in Oregon. In 1851, Jacob Vanderpool, the African-American owner of a saloon restaurant, of, of a saloon restaurant and boarding home was actually expelled from Oregon territory. Uh, Salem Public Library, uh, Library records uh, state Quote, the exclusion laws were primarily intended to prevent blacks from settling in Oregon, not to kick out those who were already here. The exclusion laws were primarily intended to prevent blacks from settling in Oregon, but not to kick out those who were already here, according to Salem Public Library records. But Vanderpool's neighbor quote, reported him for the crime of being black in uh, Oregon 
and Judge Thomas Nelson gave him 30 days to leave the territory. Okay, he got reported for being black and being black in Oregon. Now, in 1857, as Oregon sought to become a state, it wrote the exclusion of blacks into its constitution. This is the 1857 constitution of a uh, uh, state constitution of Oregon. They stated, quote, no free Negro. Just a second. No free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall ever come reside or be within this state or hold any real estate or hold any real estate or make any contract or maintain any suit therein and the legislative assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such free Negroes and mulattoes and for their effectual exclusion from the state and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state or employ or harbor them therein. Okay, let me repeat that. This is in the 1857 state constitution of Oregon. Okay, as Oregon sought to become a state in the union of the United States of America, it wrote the exclusion of blacks of African American of African Americans into its constitution. The 1857 state constitution of Oregon says, quote, no free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall ever come reside or be within this state or hold any real estate they're, they're, they're making it illegal for African-Americans to own land in Oregon or hold any real estate or make any contract or maintain any suit therein. And the legislative assembly shall provide for penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such free Negroes and mulattoes and for their effectual exclusion from the state and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state or employ or harbor them therein. So they're saying you're going to be punished if you hire these Negroes or mulattoes, if you harbor them, if you have them stay with you, you try to uh, hide them, protect them, if you bring them into the state. This is a total exclusion of free African-Americans and, and, and mulattoes in the state of Oregon in their state constitution of 1857. Now, when Oregon entered the Union of the United States in 1859, it did so as a quote-unquote whites only state. It did so as a whites only state. The original state constitution of Oregon banned slavery, but also excluded non-whites from living there. So they banned slavery, but they also excluded non-whites from living in Oregon. Now, Winston Grady Willis, director of Portland State, uh, uh, Portland State 
University School of Gender, Race and Nations, said Oregon is the only state in the United States that actually began as literally whites only. Oregon is the only state in the United States that actually began as literally whites only. He went, on, he went on to say, even though there was subsequent legislation that challenged those statutes, the statutes were not removed from the books until 1922. Now, Grady Willis went on to say, it's really important for folks to understand this notion of Oregon as this lily white state sets the tone and sets the tone and is important structurally for the remainder of history of not only the state of Oregon, but cities like Portland, Oregon as well. Now, Portland, Oregon's reputation as a as a progressive city is largely a myth, he said. Is largely a myth, he said, according to the July 2015 uh, census report. The city of Portland, Oregon, had six six hundred twelve thousand people, and was seventy seven point six percent white and five point eight percent African American. Grady Willis called it quote a key site for Klan activity, a key site for Ku Klux Klan activity. Now, this is the historical backdrop for the charges against a uh, Christian, uh, 35 years old, who allegedly verbally abused two women on the train, including one wearing a hijab, and then attacked the men who came to her aid. Okay, I remember that case when that happened. Uh, okay. Now, Oregon has a defiant history of resisting federal laws that gave African-Americans rights. When we look at the 14th Amendment, uh, Karen Gibson, who's an associate professor in Portland State's uh, Tulane uh, School of Urban Studies and Planning, said Oregon rescinded its initial ratification of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which granted citizenship to, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States, end quote, including former slaves. Oregon rescinded its initial ratification of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, just one second here. Okay, now Oregon was just one of six states that refused to ratify the 15th Amendment, which gave African-American men the right to vote. Oregon was just one of six states that refused to ratify the 15th Amendment of 1870. Oregon did not ratify the 15th Amendment, which is ratified by the other states in 1870. Oregon did not ratify the 15th Amendment until 1959, 100 years after the state joined the union in 1859. It was a symbolic adoption as part of its centennial celebration. This 100th anniversary celebration is being a state in the union. They did it as symbolism. 
It was a symbolic adoption for Oregon to ratify the 15th Amendment in 1959. It did. It did not ratify, it did not re-ratify the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution until 1973. Now, many white settlers who came uh, to, uh, to Oregon came here for the Oregon Land Donation Act, the Oregon Land Donation Act. This place was intentionally settled by whites for whites, uh, Gibson said. Okay, and that gave uh, 600, the Oregon Donation Land Act gave whites and half-breed Indians 650 acres of land. Uh, they were allocated that from uh, the government. Quote, they did not want slavery here. They didn't want land taken over by large plantations. So they did not have to compete with bonded labor. So they didn't have to compete with bonded labor. They didn't want to compete with the labor of enslaved Africans because you can't work cheaper than free. And there, we know there were at least 262 skills, trades and crafts that African people had in this country from 1619 to 1865. So you're going to see these efforts by some people to keep slavery out of areas not for moral reasons, not because they felt slavery was wrong and they didn't feel they, they felt people shouldn't be treated like that. Well, it's because of economic reasons. They didn't want uh, slaves doing the work and uh, doing the jobs that white men were doing because we, we had skills and trades. OK, we were skilled tradespeople also. We weren't just picking cotton. So you're going to see this. You're going to see this fight as well, trying to keep slavery out of areas for economic reasons. Quote, they did not want slavery here. They did not want land taken over by large plantations, so they didn't have to compete with bonded labor. But they also thought blacks were inferior. They also thought blacks were inferior. That is still here. White supremacy is about that. The beliefs that whites are supreme. Now, Darnell Miller, Darnell Milner, I should say, Professor Emeritus, Emeritus in uh, Portland's, Portland State's Black Studies Department, said many early Oregon settlers were opposed to slavery, quote, not because of what it did for blacks, but because of what it did to them, to white people. Not because of what it did to African-Americans, but because of what it did to white people. Slavery represented a competition they did not wish to work against, end quote. Now, uh, Darnell Milner said Oregon became a place where many practices we associate with the Jim Crow South were legal here. Many practices we associate with the Jim Crow South were legal in Oregon. In the 1920s, Oregon had the largest Ku Klux Klan organization west of the Mississippi River. In 1922, Walter Pierce, a member of the Ku Klux Klan, 
Walter Pierce, a member of the Ku Klux Klan, was elected governor of Oregon. Now, he's a member of the Ku Klux Klan, elected governor of Oregon. We see that Peter Burnett, who uh, came up with the black exclusion laws of, of 1844, we see he became the first uh, American governor of California. Now, Walter Pierce, Pierce served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1932 to 1942. OK, and then in 19 and we know in 1922, he became uh, governor of Oregon. He was a Klan member. They, they show some more Klan members there. It says Jesus saves above them. Question we should ask is Jesus saves who? Who, who is it saving them? Who is it saving? Who's Jesus? I'm just I'm just asking the question it says Jesus saves. So my response would be Jesus saves who or whom? Now, Oregon's hostility toward African-Americans remains part of the state's culture, it remains part of the culture of Oregon. In the 1980s and 90s, Oregon became a destination for the largest skinhead movement in the country. Uh, Darnell Milner said. Um, professor emeritus in Portland's emeritus in Portland State's Black Studies Department. Daryl Miller, I said Daryl Milner, Daryl Milner. In the 1980s and 90s, Oregon became a destination for the largest skinhead movement in the country. Okay, Daryl Milner said, quote, their objective was to achieve something pioneers tried to achieve here. And that was to create a white homeland. That was to create a white homeland. Now, Daryl Milner said that in the 1980s and 90s, quote, in Oregon and especially in Portland, Oregon, it was very dangerous for a person of color, end quote. An infamous racial attack occurred in Portland in 1988 when an Ethiopian immigrant was fatally beaten by three white supremacist skinheads on the streets of Portland, Oregon. Mulajeta Mulajeta Sarah was a student at Portland University. He was killed by three white supremacists who were members of the white Aryan resistance who beat him with a baseball bat. In 1990, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League won a lawsuit against the white Aryan, the white Aryan resistance on behalf of uh, Sarah's uh, family. Daryl Miller said he has lived in Oregon 47 years. He said when he heard about the stabbings on the train in, in, in May of uh, 2017, the stabbings on the train in May of 2017, he said he was disturbed but not surprised. Disturbed but not surprised. He said it reinforced the subterranean awareness all people of color in Oregon have that something like that could happen to them at any time and in place. Any time and in any place. 
that is reflective of what people of color in Oregon live with. It is on a subconscious level daily. It is on a subconscious level daily. You are constantly aware that is a possibility. Okay, uh, so check out this article here from, um, this is from June 7th, 2017. When Portland banned blacks, Oregon's shameful history as an all-white state. When Portland banned blacks, Oregon's shameful history as an all-white state. And this is by Denine L. Brown for uh, the Washington Post. Okay. Now, very quickly here. Lastly, there's also a piece from um, blackpass.org that deals with uh, Black Laws of Oregon, 1844 to 1877, 1844 to 1857. Okay. Black Laws of uh, Oregon, uh, blackpass.org, 1844 to 1857. So you can check this out as well. It's another uh, good article, a lot of historical information. Black Laws of Oregon, 1844 to 1857. Um, and just briefly here, it says beginning with the exclusion law of 1844 enacted by the provisional government of the region of Oklahoma country, uh, of Oregon country before it became a state in the union, Oregon passed a series of measures designed to ban African-American settlement in the territory. Historian Elizabeth McLagan describes those laws in the article below. Now, Oregon passed exclusion laws against African-Americans twice during the 1840s, considered another law in the 1850s and in, and in 1857 approved an exclusion clause as part of its constitution. Exclusion laws were also passed in uh, Indiana, Illinois, and, con and considered in Ohio, but Oregon was the only free state admitted to the union with an exclusion clause in its constitution. All right, so read the rest of this here. Uh, the Black Laws of Oregon, 1844 to 1857. So we talk about repairing the damage of slavery. It's not just being enslaved. It's oppressive laws like this that help to maldistribute wealth, power, and resources into the hands of Europeans. Okay. Uh, if you like this type of information, also you can support the African History Network. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. And uh, this helps us keep broadcasting six days a week, keep doing the research, stay on the air. Or at our web, or at our website, africanhistorynetwork.com, click on the yellow donate button. Um, 
And when you do it, do Cash App. Be sure to type in dollar sign the AHN show S H O W to say Michael and show my name there. We have the real our, our real Cash App account up, and these other ones are fake ones. Be sure to register for the uh, online course that I teach. We have a new one starting up uh, Sunday, July fourth, twenty twenty one. It's going to be ten consecutive Sundays, two p.m. to four p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Maafa understand that the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. Kemet is one of the original names for Egypt. Ma'afa is a Kiswahili term referring to the great disaster, our Holocaust, the transatlantic slave trade. If you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, scroll down the page, you'll see the information for the class. Click right here on register here and it takes you to the next page. Click on enroll. And uh, as soon as you register, you can start watching the bonus content. You can join us in class live Sunday, July 4th, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do the class live. All the sessions are recorded. So if you miss anything, you can go back and watch it over and over again. All right. We're out of time here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now, it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. Um, we'll talk to you next time. And also, uh, email us at AHN show at African History Network.com, AHN show at African History Network.com to advertise with the African History Network. You can also watch the African History Network show on uh, Black on Purpose TV.com, Black on Purpose TV.com, BOP TV.com. Uh, I talked to Michael uh, Campbell, CEO of Black on Purpose. So they, they started uh, uploading uh, episodes of our shows daily also. On Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music. Black history and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. For 25 years, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum has carried on the rich legacy of the Black Museum movement in America by showcasing original artifacts of the Black experience at colleges, universities, K-12 schools, corporations, libraries, conferences, and cultural events, making it the most traversed Black History mobile exhibit in American history. Dr. Khalid El Hakim is the founder of the Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum, and he is a highly sought-after public speaker on topics of Black history, social studies, education, museum studies, hip-hop, and race relations. Dr. Khalid was named among the change makers for NBC Universal's Erase the Hate campaign and listed as one of the 100 men of distinction for black enterprise. 
He recently founded the Michigan Hip Hop Archive on the campus of Western Michigan University. The Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum is currently scheduling in-person and virtual exhibits nationwide. For more information, please contact Dr. Khalid Al-Hakim directly at 313-645-4197, 313-645-4197, or visit their website at blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. That's blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. You can also email him at b history101 at yahoo.com, bhistory101 at yahoo.com. 